In a sense, economics has become the religion of our time. It's not a law of nature. It's an intimidation tactic masquerading as an economic theory. It's a way to negotiate wages at scale. In the neoliberal political movement, we argue that this imaginary world got confused with the real world. We made rich people richer and occasionally threw a bone to the poor. At the end of the day, if all we stand for is leveling the playing field of the free market, that's not enough. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. It's like Econ 101 without all the BS. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. I'm Stephanie Irvin. I run a lot of our advocacy and campaign work here at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, last week you introduced us to Pitchfork Economics. You told us that the pitchforks are coming for us. Right. This episode, we will talk about why and start by asking the question, is Econ 101 a lie? You ever taken like an Econ 101 course? No, I've never taken an economy class. Yes, microeconomics and macroeconomics 101. No, I haven't. Oh, I guess I did in college. I have taken Econ 101, 201, 301, 401. No. Yeah, I did in college. So really, there's kind of two ways to talk about Econ 101. There's Econ 101, the actual class you might have taken in college, and that taught you neoclassical economics. Then there's Econ 101 in the rhetorical, political sense where you make some argument for raising the minimum wage and somebody rolls their eyes at you and says, it'll kill jobs. I mean, come on. It's Econ 101. Yes. Yeah. And and that form of Econ 101, what, what the writer James Kwok calls economism, is best understood really as a methodology for social control. It's a way of enforcing status constructs. It's a way of sort of bludgeoning people into believing that what they get is what they deserve, uh, among other things. But in this episode, we should really focus, I think, more particularly on the weaknesses of the underlying academic economic construct, which is neoclassical economics, the way in which the definitions, uh, the assumptions about human behavior are uh, wanting, the assumptions about the dynamics of human social systems, in other words, how people interact is deficient, and the way in which we characterize uh, prosperity and economic growth largely around statistics like GDP, why that's also uh, deficient and why that's just not working out. But a fun thing to reflect on is the way in which the, the sort of macroeconomic neoclassical construct is under attack. But so it, can you guys just explain the difference between macroeconomics and microeconomics? Yeah, there's a uh, there's a difference between micro and macroeconomics. Microeconomics is about economic behavior on the micro scale, how people behave and what their interactions are, and among other things, the uh, impact of um, taxes on incentives and so on and so forth. And macroeconomics is about the big picture, how the whole economy behaves as a consequence of those micro interactions. We have a problem with microeconomics here at Civic Ventures because 
all of the underlying assumptions that neoclassical microeconomists make about human behavior turn out to be just objectively false. And, you know, the point of the podcast is to explain to people how and why those assumptions are wrong and more particularly why they should care, why it matters. So since I skipped taking Economics 101, honestly, why should I care? So the existing theory in all economics is built on the assumption that people are perfectly selfish, perfectly rational, and perfectly calculating. And that assumption about human behavior undergirds everything that economists do. So why does this matter so much? Because if your economics accepts the truth about human behavior, that people are uh, reciprocal, moral, approximating, um, emotional, rather than selfish, rational calculators of their self-interest, then when you look around the world at all the prosperity in it, what you can see quite clearly is that it was reciprocity and cooperation and morality that created all this prosperity, not selfishness. And once you see that connection in a more honest way about what it is that creates prosperity in human societies, then you can optimize for more of the good thing rather than optimizing for more of the bad things. So we live, Steph, in a culture, as you know, where people celebrate selfishness, where they literally believe that the more aggressively and narrowly they pursue their own self-interest, the better it will be for everyone. Like, people literally believe that. And they believe it because this false assumption of neoclassical economics taught them that it was true. And, you know, in the first episode, we talked a little about the ideological layer of neoliberalism. And one of the cornerstone beliefs in neoliberalism is this idea that the only purpose of the corporation is to enrich shareholders. Why? Because that's how humans efficiently create prosperity for everyone, relying, in turn, on that assumption about human behavior. But once you kill that dumb idea about human behavior— now, the idea that the only purpose of the corporation is to enrich the shareholders and the executives is just obviously nonsense. It's bullshit. And so that's why getting this right is so important. It's not, it's not just an academic question. By accurately settling the academic question, you inform the ideology that people will accept about how to organize their lives and the policy agendas they will enact to make the world a better place. So, Nick, you just expanded on our fundamental so, theme that we stated in the first episode, which is bad theory leads to bad policy, yeah. which leads to bad outcomes. We need to insert something in there. It's actually bad theory leads to bad narrative, yes. which leads to bad policy, Correct. which leads right. to bad outcome. And the worst lies are the ones we tell ourselves. Exactly. They're the most so convincing. I don't think I have choice or agency, yeah. or can change anything about how the economic world is just inserting itself on me, then I am less likely to advance our collective interest in doing something differently. That's right. And so people over the last 40 years have been relentlessly told that selfishness is righteousness and that your only responsibility is to advance your own narrow self-interest. And if you do that, the public interest is served. And that is just a complete lie that human societies are built from reciprocity and cooperation. And, and cooperation, in turn, is built by trust, 
It's only possible with high levels of trust. And trust is the product of justice. That that's why justice is so important in human societies, is that it creates trust, which enables cooperation, from which all human prosperity is built. It's not competition that does it. It's cooperation. The reason you care about these academic issues is that these academic assumptions will end up framing everything in your life about how we organize the society and who gets what and why. Okay, so on today's podcast, one of my very dear friends and longtime collaborators, Eric Beinhocker, is going to be with us. Eric is currently the executive director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking at Oxford University, where he leads a team of, I don't know, 125 researchers at the bleeding edge of economic research and theory. Eric is regarded as the, the world's leading heterodox economic thinker and um, runs around the world uh, talking to people about new ways to think about economics. Uh, he lives in London with his family and in uh, the interest of full transparency, Eric and I are currently co-writing a book on economics that will cover uh, in greater depth a lot of the issues that we touch in this podcast, uh, Pitchfork Economics. So, Eric today is going to talk to us a little bit more in detail about the weaknesses of neoclassical economics and point towards a new way of thinking about human behavior, human social systems, and uh, how we might measure whether things are getting better or worse. So, Eric, good morning. Good morning. Uh, how is merry old England? <laughs> Very rainy as usual. <laughs> So, Eric, can we talk about the concept of equilibrium mm. and why assuming that the system is an equilibrium system, what that means and how it informs your intuitions about how it works? Yeah, this is, um, you know, it may sound like a bit, bit of a, you know, academic point, but it's, it's actually a pretty fundamental one. So if you look at the, you know, the work of, you know, earlier classical economists, you know, many of them were actually, what they were describing was a, you know, system that was in change, that was, you know, evolving and, you know, moving over time. And they were often actually quite interested in the dynamics uh, of the economy. A lot of the interesting questions are about how does it change over time and where might it go? But, um, you know, starting in the, in, in the late uh, 1800s, as economists tried to make economics more mathematical, uh, the tools that they had at the time, which were borrowed from physics, uh, were tools that looked at systems at rest. You know, can we describe uh, what happens, you know, when a pendulum stops swinging or, you know, uh, a rock rolls down, rolls down a hill and comes to rest or, you know, a pencil falls down on, on a table. And, you know, uh, they had pretty good mathematics for these static systems going to a state of rest or equilibrium. And they used those tools to apply to the economy and and you know it seemed like a good fit particularly you know you think of something like the law of supply and demand yes. uh, which uh, describes how buyers and sellers meet in a market and then come to agree on a price in a kind of state of rest or, or equilibrium that that math was a real breakthrough and and came to dominate the field but you know what it missed was the fundamental 
issues in the economy that the, the economy rarely is in a state of rest. It's constantly in motion. You know, uh, there's innovators innovating and, you know, consumers changing their tastes and preferences and, you know, firms changing their strategies and, and developing new products and services and so on. The, the economy is constantly in motion. It's, it's inherently a disequilibrium system. But it's only, uh, only very recently that we've had the, the tools, uh, in particular uh, computer power, uh, to be able to describe the economy more realistically as a, as a disequilibrium system. You know, the problem with the equilibrium models is, again, they cause you to miss many of the most important phenomena in the economy, like booms and busts and right. crashes and things like 2008, or you know, on the positive side, questions of economic growth. Yes. Or you know how do we transition to a sustainable, you know, green economy? Yeah. Um, or how do we deal with problems like inequality? A lot of the you know big issues that we're wrestling with now are inherently disequilibrium phenomena. And, and just uh, I guess uh, to underscore your point, if your baseline assumption is that the economy is an equilibrium system, a boom or a bust, a bubble, sort of can't happen. It's not supposed to happen. Well, you kind of go through two stages. First is a sort of denial. Yeah. It can't, can't happen. But then when it's happening, then, you know, the, the answer is is do nothing. Right. Because, you know, the system because will Because it will come back to equilibrium. It will come back right. to equilibrium. And, and you can see how this kind of thinking and these theories then inform the, the political debate. Right. You know, there were many during the 2008 crisis that did argue the best thing we could do is do nothing. Yeah. Uh, and I think the evidence is pretty strong that if we did nothing, you know, we probably would have, instead of a great recession, we would have had a, a true great depression. Right. Again, it's a very abstract concept. But, you know, if you're in a, in a closed equilibrium system like a bowl with a marble, if you throw the bowl in the marble, eventually um, it will come to rest at the bottom. It, it will come to it, equilibrium. Exactly. And, if you, and, and, and all you have to do is do nothing. In fact, if you want do, it to come to nothing. rest... And, doing and, nothing and the, is your best bet. <laughs> doing nothing is your best bet, exactly. And, and yeah. also, um, quite importantly, a brilliant but rather strange Italian economist named Vilfredo Pareto, who is known not just for his, his, his mathematics, but also the fact that he kept something like 20 cats in his house. Uh, he, <laughs> he came up uh, with this idea that this equilibrium point was also the optimal point for the economy. It was the economy when resources are being, you know, used in their most efficient and, you know, best way for society as a whole. So a further point is that, you know, by doing nothing, letting the economy come to equilibrium, that you'll come to the, you know, the best outcome for yeah. society. So. This leads to then views that, like, you know, the economy on, on economic inequality, right. that, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. And that's actually, you know, in the level of inequality we have is the best and most efficient outcome for society. Right. Well, well, this all makes sense now because anybody who's had a cat knows that they reach equilibrium 17 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> so to be clear, Eric, you, you are outside of the economic consensus. So when you talk to your fellow, econ uh, fellow economists who still subscribe to the neoclassical equilibrium models, how do they explain things like the minimum wage, that it never seems to work the way their models predict it will work. Well, it's, it's funny. Uh, economics is in a real state of flux right now, which you know, actually makes it a very exciting time to, to be an economist. 
so, you know, uh, many of my uh, colleagues will actually push back at me and say, Eric, you know, you're fighting against a straw man. Uh, the neoclassical model's dead. No, nobody takes it seriously anymore. You know, don't flog a, a dead horse. And to Congress uh, takes it many seriously. degrees, you know, that's, that's true. <laughs> you know, again, as, as I mentioned, lots of economists are doing work on, you know, behavioral models and, you know, realistic institutional models and, you know, more dynamic views of the economy and so on. Um, but there's a you know big disconnect between this work and and uh, work in the kind of more applied and, and policy area. Again, if, if if you know if you look at a lot of the uh, academic work on an issue like the minimum wage, it is you know this in in this kind of fairly narrow neoclassical framework. If you look at a lot of macroeconomic modeling, you know on things like monetary policy or you know fiscal policy, again it's it's uh, you know comes from this. Uh, you know, neoclassical view. And, you know, uh, part of this is just economics, uh, you know, it takes time to, to change. Uh, part of it is that it, it's hard to do these things in a new and better way and, you know, it takes more, uh, more work. Uh, but some of it is also just habits of mind. You know, people have been used to thinking this way for a long time and it's, it's hard to change. So, so the, the policymakers are lagging the discipline. Well, no, actually, the other. So it's 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 kind of a bit of a sandwich. <laughs> so I, I'd say it, it, at the more kind of level of basic research, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on, and in the policy community itself, you know, uh, there's a big appetite for new approaches and models. So actually, uh, the central banks are are some of the you know leading advocates for these new approaches, and and are very disillusioned, you know, with the uh, standard models. And, you know, we have conversations in treasuries and finance ministries where, or environmental ministries or lots of places in governments and in the policy community where we get a lot of interest and support for these ideas. It's more the kind of applied part of economics in academia that, that actually seems to be uh, lagging. Our next guest is James Kwok who is a law professor at the University of Connecticut. And uh, James has written this amazing book called Economism, Bad Economics and the Rise of Inequality. Nick, pleasure to hear from you. How are you? I'm well, how are you? Good, how goes the battle? <laughs> Poorly. <laughs> uh, I think that's uh, honest but accurate. <laughs> Hi, Professor Kwok. Thanks for joining us. Hi. This is Stephanie. Yeah, my pleasure. Why don't we start by just telling us what economism is, because we should start with our listeners with that. So just get, reprise yeah, sure. the book and the concept. Yeah, so economism is the uh, misuse of very simplistic models from first-year economics to try to uh, make claims about the world, claims that are politically convenient to some people. So for those of you who have taken economics or haven't taken it, the first thing you learn is you learn about supply and demand in competitive markets, and you learn that the forces of supply and demand essentially create a perfect world because everyone gets paid exactly what they deserve and all products cost exactly what they should make and all resources get allocated to their, their best uses. And I say this is first-year economics because when people study more economics and go to graduate school and so on, they learn that this model really applies to a very small segment of the economy. 
But what's happened is that beginning especially in the 1950s, 1960s, conservative, conservative ideologues started using arguments based on this very simple supply and demand model to say things like, you know, very famously, the minimum wage hurts poor people because the minimum wage is essentially a price floor in the market for labor and it creates a shortage and that shortage is unemployment. And I think this kind of argument has been very powerful for a couple of reasons. One is that it invokes the, the power of economics, which many people are just intimidated by. Right. And then secondly, it allows this particular kind of rhetorical argument that you heard first among conservatives, which is that I really like poor people and I really want to help poor people. And that's why I'm against the minimum wage. And that's why I'm against welfare. You hear that one too, right? Uh, welfare hurts poor people because it undermines the incentive to work. Yeah, that we would pay you more, except that would be bad for you. For you, exactly. So, <laughs> and that is, you know, that is a godsend for the right because they've been accused for centuries, you know, since Dickensian England, they've been accused of just like not caring about poor people. Right? right. What Milton Friedman, the economist, gave them was this tool to say, no, we are actually the champions of the poor. What was your goal in writing economism? What were you hoping to achieve? I guess I had two audiences. One, neither one was kind of conservative Republicans. One was I wanted to equip progressives to be able to understand what people were saying when they said, it's just economics 101, because I think a lot of people find that intimidating. And, and I think a lot of progressives would not know how to argue with someone who says, who gets out a cocktail napkin and draws a picture and shows that minimum wage creates unemployment. So I wanted them to to give them a little bit of economics and to show that this is not the whole story. In a few cases, to teach them the other side of the story, but more generally just to make people more suspicious of that whole line of reasoning. It's just, it's just economics. And then I guess my second audience was, was you know, I guess moderate Democrats, because I think uh, many people have been won over to the idea that as Bill Clinton said, government's not the solution. As Al Gore said, government should be smaller. A lot of Democrats have been won over to the idea that really we want the free market to generate prosperity, and all we need to do is kind of tweak it around the margins. And I think that's just wrong. Um, so I was hoping to convince a few people of that. But so, Professor Kwok, are you arguing that folks are applying the lessons of Econ 101 incorrectly, or that the lessons in Econ 101 are themselves wrong, or both? I think they're being applied incorrectly, but it's partly the way people learn Economics 101 because in a first-year class with a good teacher, with most economics teachers I have no reason to think are bad, uh, they will explain the model and then they will say, this is an analytical model, we use it as a starting point, and then we look at ways in which the world differs from the model and how that changes the outcomes. Uh, but I think that, first of all, it's much easier to remember the model <laughs> than, than the caveats. And secondly, you know, a lot of public policy debate is essentially kind of like it's a debating club in which people try to score points, you know, by, by clarity and simplicity. And this provides a, a handbook of clear and simple arguments against many kinds of government intervention. Because again, the starting point is essentially that private markets generally produce optimal outcomes. Uh, so I think it's largely a, it's a case of misapplication. You know, often it's a, it's a common trope among commentators. They will say, you know, I'm sorry the world is this way, but it's just economics 101. There's yes. nothing I can do about it. Right. <laughs> it's a way of disclaiming all agency, dis pretending politics doesn't exist, and saying this is just a force of nature. It's like gravity. 
Um, but again, if you talk to a, an economist who, you know, a, a professor, maybe one with a Nobel Prize in that very subject, most of the time they will tell you things are more complicated. Yeah. So can you deconstruct the claims of economism a little bit more? Like, you know, how do they, um, how do they resolve in the public discourse? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think the minimum wage is perhaps the simplest example to talk about. As I said, the diagram you can draw on a cocktail napkin says that if you have a minimum wage, it will cause unemployment. And then I would say that at the high level, this is, if you look at op-eds written against increasing the minimum wage, that is, that is usually the core of the argument, that it, it, uh, as Milton Friedman said, it harms the very p people it was meant to help. But then I think there's a, there's a level below this as well, because what's happened, I think, has, has been amply documented, is over the past 50 years, the conservatives have funded and developed a network of think tanks that dwarfs anything comparable on the left, um, in part because most democratic-funded institutions end up being centrist for reasons that I, I don't fully understand. And so this kind of this basic claim becomes then the, the starting point for these think tanks to put out industry-funded studies that then purport to back up the claims of, of economism. Because I, I'd say that, you know, this, on questions like this, on public policy questions, the, you know, the attack from the right kind of takes two forms. And one is, one is the, the sound bites that politicians use and that people use in op-ed articles saying, look, it's just economics 101. And then on the second level, there is a you know, an industry of organizations who will churn out white papers and empirical studies to kind of just muddy the waters. Yeah. Um, it's the industry of, well, if we have a study and they have a study, then Fox News will say, well, we can't decide. Right. Correct. Which one it is. Yeah. So, you know, what's, what's fascinating to me is that the Chamber of Commerce and their allies churn out a lot of papers on why raising wages will be terrible for workers. But what they never do is churn out papers and send them to, to the press showing why raising wages will be bad for executive bonuses. Even though, <laughs> you know, like, why is that? You know, like, and, and bad for shareholders. Like, why is it yeah. that they only seem to release papers about why it will be bad for workers and never release papers of why it will be bad for owners and shareholders? And this is, of course, because they're trying to advance a moral argument that they think yeah. can win the day. Uh, and, you know, we're rich, you're poor, and we want to keep it that way doesn't sell. And the other thing that uh, I think is worth mentioning is that the marvelous uh, historian Yuval Harari has said in his books, and I, I really do think this is true, is that the iron law of history and the one that, you know, sort of undergirds all of the narratives that hold human societies together comes in one of two forms, either God says or it's a law of nature. Yeah. And that is why economism is so powerful. And that is why it takes that form is because what folks are saying is that raising wages kills jobs is just like force equals mass times acceleration, that these are laws yeah, of nature. Exactly. They are inviolate. And that if you yeah. contradict them, well, you just don't understand physics or you just don't understand economics. That They are asserted as if they're laws of nature. And here's the thing about force times mass equals acceleration is that it is true in every circumstance where it has ever been tested. Yeah. <laughs> it is yeah. always true. It's never not true. 
that's why it's a physical law. But raising wages kills jobs is never true. It's, it's not a law of nature. It's an intimidation tactic masquerading as an economic theory. It's a way to negotiate wages at scale. Yeah. So that sentiment is very familiar to me. The epigraph to the book is, is a quote from Baudelaire. It's the one that has been cited many times where he said the devil's greatest trick was convincing people that he didn't exist. And, you know, I started off the book talking about Candide by Voltaire, which was most, you know, right. well-known character is the philosopher Pangloss, who's a caricature of Leibniz, who says this is the best of all possible worlds. And I think that, you know, part of the, the I don't know if I quite make the analogy in the book, but in a sense, economics has been, become the religion of our time, or at least the religion of the kind of policy and, and political elite. And I think that this is one reason when you talk about this convincing people that it's a law of nature, you know, obviously we've talked a little bit about how this is very convenient for Republicans, but I think this is also this idea that it's a natural law is part of what has uh, helped move the Democratic Party so far to the center and to the, the center right on, on many economic issues. Yeah. But some of the policies that w- Democrats support actually do are better for the economy, right? Are better for growth. Un- unambiguous. But so why don't we ever make that argument? Yeah. Why are we instead making arguments about fairness and helping poor people or, to your point, Professor Kwok, leveling the playing field? So let's just take Obamacare. I think Obamacare is the best example. Obamacare is a very kind of over-engineered, well, it's the long way to try to use market forces to approximate the outcome you would get with single payer, when single payer is obviously the short way (laughs) to get there. And Obamacare was designed that way. There's a whole question of whether we had the votes. Let's leave that aside for a second. It was designed that way so that people would not accuse Democrats of being socialist. Well, guess what? They call us socialist anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and and it is a it is a less good outcome because yes. uh, I think it's unsustainable um, because it doesn't do enough to, to reduce um, the healthcare is just getting too expensive and it doesn't do enough to solve that problem at the end of the day. But I think that we we propose policies that are certainly better than the Republican alternatives, but they are perceived as technocratic. Mm-hmm. And they do not give people what they really want. What people really want is security in a few basic areas, such as such as healthcare. Um, and what we've had with Obamacare, again, I will say it's better than the Republican alternative. What we've done is we've shifted healthcare costs from upfront premiums to uh, back-end cost-sharing, because basically, in order to create a policy that people can afford, it often has to be a high deductible plan. And so we we have these kind of technocratic half measures and we say that we're, you know, harnessing market forces. And that's part of why I think people think Democrats don't stand for anything. Yeah. <laughs> because the Republican message right. is yeah. is one sentence long. We're gonna get government out of the way and yeah. we're gonna let, you know, innovation and, and entrepreneurship in the American way will make everyone rich. Right. I mean it's a it's a complete it's completely false. But that yeah. it's one sentence. And, it is and it is persuasive. We we don't have a sentence. Right. <laughs> you know, a lot of de- the Democrats' position on policy debates ends up being, well, my complicated policy is better for more people than your simple policy. Yeah. And they're right. <laughs> yeah, but it's that not politics. But it's not persuasive. That doesn't win you any vote. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't stand for anything. It doesn't get you any votes and yeah. and and as I said, in in the long term, our policies tend to be better for economic growth. But but the problem that an increasing number of people in this country face is not a lack of growth. It's not a lack of jobs. It's it's just inequality. Yeah, we have plenty and, of jobs. Uh, the problem is is that the jobs don't pay enough. <laughs> that's yeah, the yeah, you know exactly. that's the principal pro- pro- problem with yeah. uh, the economy. And 
um, people aren't paid enough because they don't have good jobs. They're not paid enough because their employers don't pay them enough. Uh, and that yeah. has to, and that, and, and has nothing to do with the job. It has to do with the power. And that, and that, yeah. and and that, I think, is the underlying lie of economism, which is the most pernicious part about it. Is that what economism tells you is if you are paid seven twenty-five an hour, you only deserve seven twenty-five an hour. Yeah. And if the government intervenes and requires your employer to pay you more than seven twenty-five an hour, then a law of nature has been violated. Uh, cats and dogs are going to start to live together. Uh, <laughs> Earth is going to crack open. We're all going to slide into hell, and the economy will collapse. And 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 that is simply a lie. That that yeah. that people are not paid what they're worth. They they're paid what they negotiate. And how much power you have to negotiate, frankly, is orthogonal to you know, what you make, it, you know, it just, you know, in some cases you have a lot of negotiating power in a lot of ca cases, most cases people don't. Uh, and that's the role of government. And in, in any democratic society is to try to balance the power of um, elites versus non-elites. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, you know, in economics, there's obviously a whole field devoted to market power. <laughs> but again, going back to what is economism and the way it draws on a very small part of first year economics, in the, the supply and demand competitive market model does not have any market power in it. Right. So when you say the minimum wage necessarily, paying people more will necessarily cause unemployment, uh, you're drawing on a picture of the world in which power just doesn't exist. Right. And you're, you're able to pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. And in, in a world where mostly that's the only thing that's important. <laughs> yeah. So, Professor, I know you've you've offered to have your book Economism included in the syllabuses of real Econ 101 courses. Has, has anyone <laughs> actually taken you up on that? You know, to be honest, I'm I'm not actually sure. I get requests for review copies. I send them out. I haven't followed up to find out. I'm probably a little scared to ask. Well, so I think we share a lot of the same goals in our efforts to put out this podcast. So thanks for being a part of it this yeah. morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining Thank us. Thank you for having me. I really yeah. appreciate it. It's wonderful you. to talk to you. Same here. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. 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 There's a lot of, um, you know, and I can't remember any of it because it's been well over 10 years, but uh, the you know there were a lot of supply side stuff a lot of uh, supply and demand talk um, di different ways to figure out what was going to be uh, you know like what indicators there were for whatever you know like insert this into our supply and demand um, I don't know algorithm I guess and and then you can hopefully see what is going to come out on the other end. Do you think neoclassical economics was alive from the beginning? Or was it some guys really just trying to simplify how they understood the economic world yes. and explain it? Yeah, so so it's unfair to call neoclassical economics a lie. Uh, it's fair to call trickle-down economics a lie because that's a very deliberate effort to manipulate um, power and uh, economic arrangements. The, the, you know, the people who built neoclassical economics did so for the best, mostly. I mean, I don't know all of them, but certainly most of them for the best reasons. They were just trying to understand the world using the best tools that they had available. And, uh, and uh, many of them, at the time that they offered these theoretical constructs, were explicit about saying, look, this is just a model. This is just a way of... of 
modeling some things. Don't take it too seriously. I mean, for instance, GDP, which is our current measure of growth and economic prosperity, was developed by this guy named Kuznets in the 1940s, who was absolutely explicit that this should never be used as a, as a way of measuring welfare for all of the really obvious reasons in which it is def deficient, and yet we grabbed onto it. And we grabbed onto it for a couple of reasons. First, it was simple, and second, because if you measure things in a, a particular way, that benefits uh, uh, a particular group of people. If you measure output and define output as good, the people in charge of the output um, are highly rewarded. And, you know, if... Well, and at the time, I'm sure it was really easy to believe these things, because those people in the Econ 101 classes or whatever 60 years ago, 80 yeah. years ago, were elites. Yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, another theme of the podcast here is that economics is presented as if it's this sort of set of uh, revealed laws of nature. And indeed, there's some very fine academic work that is done on how economies work by legit, objective, fine people. But the way that most people experience economists is, a, is as a construct or a rationalization of who gets what and why. It is how ec economics is how modern societies um, uh, instantiate our social and moral preferences about status, privileges, and power. And whether economists want to uh, acknowledge that or not, or whether they want to admit it or not, th th their work is often harnessed to or in service of um, enforcing these status contracts that benefit some people and don't benefit others. And there's a very fine line between objective economic research and um, a very deliberate effort, um, almost certainly, of elites to enrich themselves at the expense of others using that research or those arguments or, or that data. Um, no, not a thing. It's been a long time. I don't remember anything. I don't remember. <laughs> Whether or not it was true, you know, I guess I don't know, because I didn't pay close enough attention. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about the trick in Trickle Down. And here's a preview. It's a scam, too. What people have to recognize is that these stories that are told often are not told because they're true. They're told because they're the most effective way ever devised for elites to continue to gain advantage and uh, keep other folks down. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.